Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Bolton here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 402 of the Speaker Lab podcast. We're continuing with our series, 40 Lessons from 400 Episodes. Today, we're going to be looking back at some incredible advice that has been shared through our conversations with guests on the show for the past 400 episodes. That's crazy, right? So these speakers we're going to be hearing from today, they've been in the trenches of building their, their business, refining their craft, and really learning from their own mistakes. And that's what we are going to be learning about today. There's really no one way to make it in this industry, but there are definitely some tried and true components to establishing a thriving speaking business. So these next 10 lessons are meant to meet you where you're at and provide a framework for your growth and success. Also, as a quick reminder, before we get to it, remember, that during this series, we want to give you a chance to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. This is a phenomenal resource that's going to walk you through the exact steps that you need to have a successful speaking career. So here's the deal. If you go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book, again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book, enter your info. We're going to randomly pick 40 of you. We're going to mail you a physical copy. It's literally that easy. So again, go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book and get started. All right. I know you're going to love this episode and these next 10 lessons. So here's episode 402 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Enjoy. As speakers, the magic happens when our passion and our proficiency come together. And so Michael Hyatt calls this the freedom compass. As an entrepreneur, you're constantly trying to assess what will move the needle in your business and how you can avoid the drudgery zone. That's why it's important to harness the power of the freedom compass. And so here's more from episode 246 with Michael Hyatt. So okay. let's start by talking about uh, the Freedom Compass. This is something that uh, I, I thought um, was explained really, really well. Can you start by just kind of give us an overview of what the Freedom Compass is? Yeah. So one of the big challenges that we have, all of us, is that there's more to do than we've got time to do it. Mm -hmm. And the secret to getting more done or getting the right stuff done is to really kind of follow your natural pathway to success. And it's different for everybody. So I came up with this concept, this visual model called the Freedom Compass. And basically, if you think of a traditional compass that has north, south, east, and west, north is basically where your passion and your proficiency come together. That's the things you love to do, the things you're really good at. That's what I call your desire zone. That's the things that you need to be spending more time doing. If you do more in your desire zone, those are the high leverage things that move the needle in your business that really cause your career to advance, cause your business to grow. Directly south, in other words, the opposite of the desire zone is the drudgery zone where you have neither passion nor proficiency. You don't like doing these kind of things. You're not very good at them. And they're just a grind to have to do them. Now, the good news is that we all have different things in our desire zone, different things in our drudgery zone. So for example, in my drudgery zone would be managing my email inbox, managing my calendar, booking travel, 
filing expense reports, doing basically anything administrative. Fortunately, my executive assistant, Jim, those things, all those things are in Jim's desire zone. So we are the exact match for how to be proficient as a team. Now, to the east is what I call the disinterest zone. This is where people get bored. They don't have any passion, but they're good at it. So this is why people stay in jobs longer than they should. You know, I, I, I for example, I'm, I'm really good at accounting. I just don't enjoy it. You know, it, it, it really bores me. I don't have any training in it, but I got really good at it at Thomas Nelson because as a CEO, so much of my job is relating to the financial and investment community. But it's my disinterest zone. And sometimes you have to do that stuff because it's what's bringing in, you know, the, the bacon. Right. But it's, it'll kill you. It's soul-crushing work and it'll kill you. And it's not the highest and best use of you. Now, due west is another problem. This is called the distraction zone. And this is where you've got passion. You enjoy doing it, but you're not very good at it. So for me, for example, I enjoy doing graphic design and web development. Really? But it's a place that I typically go to escape. And it keeps me from doing the high leverage work that, again, really moves the needle. So web development was, for me, something, it was easier than creating content. It was easier, easier than presenting content, but I wasn't very good at it. In fact, I brought my website down numerous times. When I hired my first web developer, he came, he accepted the job on the condition that I would never, ever <laughs> tweak the back end of WordPress again. We're taking your login away. <laughs> <laughs> the secret, again, to being really highly productive is to really focus on that desire zone. And when you do that, you'll find that you can eliminate, automate, or delegate all that other stuff that's outside of your desire zone, particularly as you build your team. And then you get increasingly focused on the stuff that only you do well and that you do the best. And that's when you see your business explode and that's the best way to scale. One of the most important pieces in building your business is establishing your brand. Brand development requires consistency and a commitment to the experience that will provide for your audience. Here's more from Rick Clemens, one of our very own coaches in episode 241 on why a strong personal brand will set you apart from the competition. Let's start with it. Like, how would you define brand or branding? Well, being a branding guy, that's where I came from. I was a branding marketing guy in hospitality for over 20 uh, some odd years. So I'm really dating myself. And yes, I'm an old fart. I'm 55 years old. But um, <laughs> it's one of those things that I say it's the experience that somebody has. So customer, whatever you want to call it, but the experience that somebody has with you, an, organi an organization or a product that kind of sets you apart from your competition or your rivals or whoever. It makes you stand out in the crowd. That's what branding is all about. And it can be anything, but for most people, and this is where everybody gets a little hung up, even outside of our speaker world, it's like, okay, so I have to have this color scheme. I have to have these fonts. I have to have this message, this mission. Yes, all of those are part of it. So yes, you're doing right if that's what you're thinking. And then we get hung up on that stuff and right. we can't move forward. So you mentioned some of the design elements. And I think that's oftentimes what we think of when we think of, of branding is just kind of the yep. same consistent visual look, whether that's colors, you know, color scheme, color palette, fonts, just that kind of general look. And that's certainly part of it, of just having a, a consistent feel to that. But it's certainly much more than just what font you choose to use for your, mm -hmm. your personal brand. What other elements go into making up a, a consistent brand? Well, I feel like the thing that is consistent about brands, and it's interesting, and as we go through this, I want people to start thinking about 
you know, who's a brand that you know, and who's a brand that you know that doesn't do it well? Who's really all over the place? Yeah. Um, so Starbucks is a great example of a great brand. They're very consistent. You know, any of the big, you know, the big box stores, any of the big retailers, yes, they're pretty con- dang consistent. You can walk into any Starbucks, you pretty much know, here's how the shelves are going to be set up. Here's how the flow is going to go, all this stuff. But here's the interesting thing that unless you're paying close attention to it, it was about seven, eight years ago that Starbucks took the word Starbucks out of all their logos. It's just the mermaid. Hmm. But if anybody sees it, they know exactly what it is. Right. So that's where a brand has evolved to the space where it's that color scheme, it's that icon, it's that, you know, it is that mark that makes it. But a brand is the name, it's the design, it's the communication, it's what they stand for, it's how they interact, it's what you're known for, it's how you do things, and it's the experience. And I know I just laid out a whole bunch of stuff there. But as speakers, the brand is you. Right and how people interact with you and all your different ways of showing up. And to me, that's what makes a brand is when you can truly see that a brand has life and a brand is truly like a person. Yeah. And you just start to think in those ways. That's how you begin to perceive brands. As speakers, we all want to get booked and paid to speak, but how do we actually go about doing that? Sometimes it's challenging to get in front of decision makers. And so today we're going to be hearing from Josh McGee, who reminds us that there is no magic solution to get in front of event planners, but there are intentional steps that you can take to start paving that way. Here's more from episode 245 with Josh McGee. Speaking from a a speaker's perspective, that can be very difficult to reverse engineer in terms of like, how do I get in front of decision makers and event planners at the right time when that Friday afternoon and everyone's cozied up in their office and they're doing that search that I happen to to come across their radar? So is there anything that speakers can do, should do or shouldn't do to proactively be on your radar? And, And how do we do that without being annoying or a pain? Obviously, you have a lot of things happening. And so we'd like to get on your radar without being annoying. So is there anything that speakers can do to proactively be one of those people that you begin to think about? Sure. I'll just mention a few basic things. I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody, but speakers that uh, do not have any videos, uh, I usually won't even click on the profile. Speakers who have videos and they're about 15 to 20 years old, I'm already going to consider, do I even want to reach out for a more recent one? So I think videos hold a lot of weight if, if we're in the profile environment. Also, speakers that do not have a clear price range, uh, those who, you know, it, it's kind of like when you're on uh, BestBuy.com and it says add to cart to see the price. You know, I'd rather scroll on and see a price. So it's a similar way of, of that video. I want to go ahead and see it. I can tell a lot from a video and I can tell a lot if the video is old or not. And then also how much is someone like that in the video going to cost me. I mean, this is happening within seconds because after a while you can view several hundred speakers just by advancing the page a few times and you're already fatigued. Right. And so uh, those profiles need that. I will often go to the person's website after I have found them to learn more. But like you said, it's hard to reverse engineer putting your website in front of the event planner's face. And so I think reaching beyond your own platforms and blogging, contributing to articles, finding who else is making noise about the topics that you're, you're sharing as a keynoter and trying to get into that circle. 
with some content, even tweets and hashtags as well. I've mm -hmm. found speakers just by using hashtags on Instagram to see who's tagging about this and what are their influencers. You know, of course, you're being risky. Those people may not be corporate speakers, but sometimes there'll be magazines that will highlight somebody. So I think getting the message that you have in other channels that might be adjacent to where that event planner is looking. It could be just that next step beyond just the speaker profile. Yeah, that's one thing we we hear a lot from speakers. And I know even in my own experience as a speaker, it's, you know, sometimes it is you did an interview or you spoke at something a couple of years ago or you wrote an article or whatever, and the right person saw it at the right time and they passed it on to someone else. And someone heard you speak four years ago at some random event. And it's not necessarily one individual thing that you did, but oftentimes it's kind of the the momentum of a variety of different things that you did that allowed you to to get on someone's radar at the right time, which it forces speakers to think about the longevity of the business, but also it, it can be challenging because there's not necessarily, hey, if you do this one thing, that's how you get on, on Josh's radar. But it, it could be any number of things that allow a speaker to get on your radar at the right time. There's a lot of sweat equity to come before you're gonna see the fruits of your labor when building a speaking business. And that's okay, that's part of it. And so Todd Henry is here to remind us that as speakers, we have to deliver every single time while also communicating warmth and presence and community to our audience. It really is an art. And so here's more on why you have to lovingly punch your audience in the gut with Todd Henry from episode 224. So I'm curious also that business is a very long-term game. And so it's a lot of early on, like a, it's kind of these seasons of planting and harvesting. And so early on, you're, you're planting a lot of seeds and it may, like you mentioned, it may be, you know, two, three, four, five years before you see some fruits of that labor and effort. So when you are today, it sounds like the bulk of what you're in terms of where you're getting gigs is mostly coming from word of mouth and people who've seen you and some kind of random stuff that is great, but it's also from the effort of years and years and years of, of work and planting those seeds. It makes it a little bit difficult at times to reverse engineer of, that's right. You know, how do I, how do I, I guess I need to do really, really good on the gig today so that I get another gig in three years from now, you know? That's pretty much the way it is. I mean, yeah. I, I wish that there was some, I mean, I, I've talked to a number of agents. I mean, I've wor worked with a handful of agencies exclusively over time, but I've talked to a number of agents and all of them, if you really, really get them into a corner and you really sort of ask them like what leads to gigs, they'll all say, ah, if we knew that we'd all be millionaires, right? Like nobody really knows what completely influences the, the buying decision. Sure. But it doesn't being out there and delivering every single time, being practical, being precise, having a point of view. This is something I think a lot of speakers don't consider is you have to have a point of view. If you don't have a point of view, people aren't going to remember you. If you don't rub some people the wrong way in your talk, you know, if, if you don't have people who are raving fans afterward and people who are like, well, that guy really irritated me. That guy, you know, yeah. if you're not in some way pushing people's buttons, people aren't going to remember you. And so you have to have a point of view. And if you have a point of view, it's much more likely you're going to be memorable in that moment, three years from that date when right. people are thinking about who they want to bring in. But I think some speakers are afraid to offend. You know, I'm not talking about being offensive, right, but I'm talking right. about not being afraid to, to stand up, to be precise, to call people out, 
to have a point of view. I spoke at uh, John Jance's event recently, uh, one of his duct tape marketing events, and he said, I feel like we've just been lovingly punched in the gut. And I was like, that's maybe the best compliment somebody could possibly give me because that's what I want to do, right? I want to like, I'm hugging you, but I'm also kind of <laughs> punching you in the gut at the same time. I think that's what a good speaker does. You know, they, they communicate warmth and they communicate presence and community. And at the same time, they're lovingly telling you things that you need to hear in order to, yeah. to go to the next level. You're not going to stand out as a speaker if you're just giving speeches. You will, though, make a name for yourself when you create an experience. No matter where you have found your corner of the industry, you have to stand out and differentiate yourself as a speaker. Stephen Shapiro joined me for episode 179 to share more on why it's important to craft an experience for your audience. I know you've done some things to really try to differentiate yourself and stand out from a crowded marketplace. So can you talk us through, like, what do you do to differentiate yourself as a speaker? I would say there are few different things that I do that separate me from the other speakers and other innovation speakers. One is I don't give speeches the way most people give speeches. I create experiences and I don't care if it's 5,000 people in an audience, we're going to do something. And this is not gratuitous you know, interaction of turn to the person next to you and sure. tell them. So I've crafted experiments that are very short, very high power, usually funny, where people in a matter of minutes see something about themselves that they just, they, they can't believe is true. And I can do this in a way just because I've been doing it for so long that the audience, like, it's so exciting. I remember I did this one event. It was 2000 people. It was five, six speakers six top name speakers. I was probably the lowest rung of all the speakers. And I remember seeing afterwards on Twitter, you know, everybody's tweeting, tweeting, tweeting about all the other speakers. And it comes to me and there's very little, but there's one tweet. And it said, we stopped tweeting about Stephen because we're so engaged. We don't want to, you know, stop and, you know, participate. Right. That's cool. And that's my goal is because we are distracted by phones and everything else that I want to create an environment where people are on the edge of their seat for as long as I'm up on stage. All right. So you got to tell us more about that, like what that looks like and how that plays out. So, because I think there's a lot of speakers who would like to make that claim that I'm, I'm more of a, I create an experience for the audience. You know, it's more than just a talking head on stage. So what does that actually look like? Can you give us an example of, of maybe one of the experiments that you do? Sure. I'll give you the most extreme one. Okay. This is to me the most interactive keynote on the planet. It's called personality poker. I've developed a deck of poker cards that basically look like regular poker cards and they have words in them that describe behavioral attributes. And what we'll do is let's say you've got an event with 500 people. We'll deal out five cards to each person in the audience and at, and I'll get up there and this is before the event, we deal out the cards. And then when I get up on stage, we go through a couple of rounds of trading. And the goal of the, the card game is to get five cards where the words best describe how you see yourself. There's also a portion where we throw literally, you know, it's sort of like 52 card pickup. We will throw hundreds of decks of cards face up on the floor. People are running around on their hands and knees trying to improve their hands. And they're giving cards to other people. So not only do you choose cards for yourself, but you're gifting cards to others. So you get to see how you're perceived by others. The energy in the room is just off the charts. And then we go through a process of interpreting and I go into the audience and say, okay, well, who do we have in this group? And then I literally reconfigure the whole room by people having them stand up and the people with all black cards on one side, all red cards on the other side. And we, we go through this process of physically reconstructing the room over and over in a way that people are just 
to me, it's just incredibly fun to do that. So, okay. I'm curious on like the logistics of that. So if you have an audience of, I can see how that works with an audience of, let's say a hundred people. If you have an audience of, let's say 5,000 people, how, how does that actually work? Does everybody in the audience have five cards or do you have yeah. cards just all over the, the room? Yeah. So if you have, you know, larger audiences, so in the thousands, many times have the cards in their packet. So okay. like when they register, we'll give them the five cards. So they have the five cards. And then after that, it's pretty easy. We just have people around the room throwing the cards on the floor. That's an easy part. So there's the a little bit part. of prep. That's the fun <laughs> part. But I do look, I do some other exercises that are, are short that don't require that. So there's another one I do with a brick and I walk on stage with a brick and we'll do this exercise. And the point of this exercise is that we always talk about thinking outside the box, but I prove to people with this exercise that actually thinking outside the box leads to lower quality, lower creativity, lower relevancy of the solutions we develop. And it's just a very quick, I mean, it takes literally five minutes to do it, but people will remember that. I mean, years later, I've had people come yeah. up to me 10, 15 years later saying, I remember that brick exercise stuck in my mind. So those are the types of things I want to create. In today's world of social media, everything is blended, personal, professional, it's all intersecting. And so what do you do about that? Well, the best thing you can do is to be you. And so Michael Barber is here to remind us that you have to reinforce the product that you're bringing to the stage and why you must be okay with sharing the real you. Here's more from episode 195 with Michael Barber. I think the thing is, is it's just that people are using almost every single social media channel to start a conversation with you. It doesn't matter if it's LinkedIn. It doesn't matter if it's Facebook. Our personal and our professional lives are so blended these days. And I'm glad that's happening because I don't think we're two different people. At least I, I hope that we're all comfortable enough with ourselves to be the same person, whether we're in a workplace or whether we're, whether we're not. And so I think that's just what's happening is that people's professional and personal blending of where they communicate is very much intersecting in strange different places these days. But also, I mean, when I'm on stage, my, essentially my Twitter handle, which is the same handle everywhere, whether it's Instagram or Facebook is, is on those slides and it's what's in the conference booklets and agendas. So if someone finds me there and starts a conversation there, who cares? It's just another <laughs> great way to have an inbound opportunity for sure. That you make a really good point about putting your your handle on the slides. I imagine you've come across some pretty good tips in that same vein, right? And working with clients about, you know, having that strategy and making it easy for people to find you. Is there anything else you do or anything else you've tried to do to kind of connect those different worlds, those different platforms and make them serve your ultimate goals, either professionally or specifically with speaking? Sure. I mean, I think that you have to understand as a speaker that you are a product that people buy. And whatever you're putting out on social, especially if you're going to talk about those social handles and you're going to encourage people to find you there, that you have to represent that product. And for me, I think the one thing that I, and somebody said this to me, I was on a podcast for travel agents a few weeks ago and the host said, you've got to follow him on Instagram because it's just the guy that you would have a conversation with as well. And I think that's me. I'm just, I'm the same person on social that you're going to get at a conference or you're going to have dinner with. And that's my product. There's no, you know, like Beyonce has, she's got her product that she puts on stage. Melanie, you've got your product that you put on <laughs> stage, right? I'm just me that gets up on stage and, and does my bit. And people buy that product for a reason. And so if you're going to leverage social, whether it's Instagram stories or Twitter or your email newsletter or whatever that channel is, you've got to make have this understanding that that conference managers and bookers and companies 
are booking you because of a product, because of something that you bring to the stage. And you have to be reinforcing that. And so for me, it's always been, this is me. And you take it or leave it. And the people that are going to book me are going to appreciate that that is the perspective that they get, that there's not a personality that's coming across. There's not uh, a different individual or a offline versus online difference, right? Yeah. And so you've got to understand that that's what you are putting out a product. You are a personal brand, call it what you want. The terms are interchangeable, but you are, the people are consuming your content, whether you think they are or not, mm-hmm. you know, that booker may be going down to their hall to their intern and saying, Hey, pull up this person's social profile. And I want to see how they act on a daily basis because they're responsible to some of their clients. Well, they're always responsible to their mm-hmm. clients, I should say. So your content, the person that you are is getting consumed in so many different places. And I sometimes I think that's a bit lost. I see a lot of speakers that are different people in social and the product that they put out in and stage. And then they are in real normal life, mm-hmm. IRL, right? <laughs> for all the millennials and Gen Zers that are listening to the podcast. Yep. And that can be confusing for, some, for yeah. someone, for a speaker bureau, for, for a booker, for a conference manager, that if there's this disconnect, that's a psychological disconnect that happens. And so yeah. the more that you can bring the sense of the individual that you bring to the stage, you know, Michael and Amy Port, who I know you've done coaching with and who I have done coaching with, they talk about one specific thing that's always resonated with me is that when you're getting to the stage, you're just amplifying you. You're doing a performance of you in a way that is grounded in a lot of the performance aspects and the training that they take you through. But it's you. And the more that it's you is the more you will resonate with an audience. And so the way that you can amplify you is, to be fair, the easiest way is just be you. And I think that's what, you know, if anything, when you're leveraging and building your personal brand, and I say that in quotes, because I think it's a bit of an overused broad term that sometimes we get uh, too many topics and conversations around, is the realization that your content and who you are is always being consumed, regardless if you're not putting it out on social, you're sitting at a restaurant, you're having a drink, you are having a conversation with a colleague, you're in a coffee shop. Any one of these people sitting around you could impact your career in an interesting way, both positively and negatively. And yeah. so you've got to make sure that the, you know, the, the, the person that you're putting out there, the individual that you are, hopefully is you. And on those social channels, it's a product that people can consume and, and resonate with. And I think that's why if there's any, for speakers, if there was any reason to be using those channels, it's to reinforce that individuality and the presence that you bring to the stage. Contrary to popular belief, there's no song and dance that serves as the key to success. According to Matthew Kimberly, referrals are actually the best sales leads. Sometimes you just have to be friendly, pick up the phone, send out that email to land your next gig. And so Matthew Kimberly joined me in episode 273 to talk about why exposure is one of the keys to success. The issue, the problem, which is I need to sell this thing, which is sales reluctance. So we've got sales reluctance coupled with natural good manners, yeah. mean that we just say, well, I hope somebody will notice that I'm good enough. Now, the way to overcome sales reluctance, I believe, I've built a career on talking about this, so I really should be able to say it in a few sentences, but I can't. But one of the key things is exposure, right? If you walk up to 100 strangers in a shopping mall, let's say you're a personal trainer, and you say, hey, I'm running personal training sessions, I've got a promotion on at the moment, would you like to come and do a session? You're probably going to get one or two people who say yes. Yeah. Right? Which means that you can sell. 
And you're also probably less afraid of asking the 101st, 102nd, 103rd, 110th, 200th person, right? right? So a little bit of exposure is necessary. I've always taught sales, even B2B, which a lot of speaking is, even though you're talking to an individual within the organization, you are talking to an individual, that an approach which is friendly and low key goes an awful lot further in the long term than throwing out a flyer, sending a speaker reel, sending them your rate sheet, telling them how great you are in the beginning. So I would recommend if you are serious about speaking and you can get access to leads, like a list of associations, a list of organizations, a list of conferences, that you pick up the phone or you send an email and you say, hey, I would love to explore speaking at your event. How do we make that happen? And that's it. That's it. I would start like that just to get over the idea that you have to do some kind of song and dance or big commercial pitch. You're going to get varied responses. You're going to get a 5% response rate perhaps or a 4% response rate from people saying, no, we're not interested. Most people will ignore you. Two or three people will say, Spend, send us a speaker reel and we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Dory Clark years ago said at a conference I attended, the journey to becoming a paid speaker is step one, Nobody wants to hear you speak and nobody wants to pay you. Step two, people are happy to hear you speak, but they still don't want to pay you. Step three, people want to hear you speak and they're not averse to paying you. And step four, people want to pay you to hear you speak. Yeah. Right? I don't believe there's a way around that unless you have other mitigating credentials like you've climbed Everest, you've served in office, you've written a book or something like that. So a great way to sell yourself as a speaker is through referrals. Referrals are the best source of sales lead. There is no lead you can get like a referral. A referral comes from somebody who's tried your product, who enjoys your product, who has experienced it recently and is making an introduction to a a friend of theirs, a trusted party to say, hey, you should trust this person. You have this instant um, transfer of trust between the referee, the referral and you. That's why I believe you should speak for free as much as you can, as much as you need to, in order to start to build up your trusted network of people who've said, hey, this girl is great. Or, hey, this guy is good. Or we heard them for 15 minutes and they were the highlight. And you say, fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. If you know anybody else, or if you're attending any other conferences, or if you'd be prepared to write me a reference or introduce me to three of your friends, then let's do that. Anybody trying to make a living as a speaker overnight has to have relationships with people who can get them on stage. If and I mean overnight, like otherwise you're going to work the hard slog. How do you get on the bigger stages out of the blue? You have those mitigating credentials that we already discussed, or you have the relationships that will get you on the stage. Now, I'm not very good at many things, but I am quite good at keeping in touch with relevant and important people. So how are you spending your time backstage? Do you keep your body moving? Do you find a quiet corner? Do you listen to your favorite music? What do you do to keep yourself going so that you're ready to roll whenever it's time to get on stage? Well, here's more from Melanie Diesel from episode 192 on how to prepare right before you get on stage. What else do you do when you're backstage? All right, so half hour, hour before you go on stage, you're just, which the other thing too is like, as a speaker, 
you're doing a lot of waiting. Like that's one thing mm -hmm. like uh, we don't always talk about is you're sitting and waiting, sitting and waiting, sitting and waiting. And sometimes it depends on the conference schedule where there's times where, hey, you, you're the session starts, there's going to be a few opening words and then you're up. But I remember I did one a couple of years ago where it's like it was a four hour session and like I'm the last thing. Well, like at that point, I'm exhausted just from like sitting back there. Like I haven't done anything. Like I just want to get on stage there, you know, get it going, get it out of the way, get rolling. Anything else that you do while you're backstage? So I talked about before that I listen to music. That's a big thing for me is like I do that up until the point where I'm about to walk out basically, yeah. you know, and if, if there happens to be music on in the venue, I'll, that works for me, but I'm listening to music and I'm usually moving. Like I don't have a, a Tony Robbins tiny trampoline that I travel with, but I do, I bounce around a little bit. I'll yeah. shake out my arms. I shake out my legs. I'll, I'll hop up and down in place. It is just about getting that blood flow moving and also like getting my body moving because yeah. I'm not just going to walk out there and stand in one place. I'm going to be walking and leaning and moving and talking with my hands. So I want all those things warmed up. So I just do, you know, music and a lot of like stretching and, and shaking things out. Yeah, I kind of rotate back and forth. Sometimes I'm just sitting in a chair or sometimes I'm just kind of pacing back and forth. I tend to try to find a place backstage that's away from everybody else. Again, some of the introvert mm -hmm. side of it and some of it just I want to make sure I'm mental. I don't I just don't want to be like having a ton of chit chat. Again, some of it depends on the the nature of the event, but sometimes I'll just try to find a not necessarily a quiet corner, but a corner away from people where I can kind of pace back and forth, be with my own thoughts and uh, and be ready to go. But yeah, jump up and down a few times and maybe a couple jumping jacks. But yeah, other than that, like I'm ready to go. Give me the mic. Let's go. Exactly. Yeah. Once I get the energy up, I'm good to go. And I, I actually am in the same, like, I agree with that. I, I also usually will try to find some space off to the side by myself to kind of like reconnect, slow things down before I start my, my little mini dance routine. So my middle daughter, when she was little, she got in this phase where she would always say, no people look at me, no people talk to me. And so my wife and I still to this day repeat that. So before I speak, no people talk to me, all right? I'm ready to go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be over in the we corner. Need, we Just need t-shirts. No, no people. No people talk to me. No people look at me right now. <laughs> I'm into it. We'll get t-shirts. All right, there you go. <laughs> You can't just be a speaker for your audience. You have to be a topical expert. And so event planners, they want experts that focus on what a speaker can teach their audience. And so Thomas Frank is here to expand on this in episode 214, explaining why you must show your audience that you're an expert, not just a speaker. So is it better from a speaker perspective to, to approach the, the lens of, I'm trying to get um, speaking engagements and I'm trying to position myself as a speaker or better to position myself as a topical expert who happens to speak on this certain topical subject. You're absolutely a topical expert. Why is yeah. that? So you can communicate that you're a speaker, but I guess like if, if I'm a decision maker, right. And I'm looking to bring somebody into an event. Yeah. I'm going to go for the topical expert. I don't, I mean, maybe I think of Gary Vaynerchuk as a speaker and maybe Gary Vaynerchuk isn't a great example here, but I'm going to use him anyway. I think of him first as a social media expert sure. or as an attention expert. He's also a great speaker, you know, and he puts up lots of clips of himself speaking, but he also has all this content that focuses on what he can teach the audience. Yeah. So at the end of the day, when somebody is making the decision to bring you into their event as a speaker, your ability to entertain the audience your credentials as a speaker, these are all factors that are going to go into the decision-making process. But the number one factor is what is the audience going to take away from your talk? And is that enough to justify having you on the docket and having you be part of the product I'm selling to the audience, which is the ticket to this event? 
The ability to sell yourself doesn't come naturally for many speakers. But here's the thing, you can't overthink the selling process. You have to have the right mindset so that you can separate yourself from the service that you offer. And so my buddy fan favorite here at TSL, Eric Ream, joined me in episode 247 to share his insight on mindset and why being a good baker doesn't mean that you can actually run a good bakery. It seems like there's a there's a big difference between like I remember reading in the book The E Myth that Michael Gerber, the author, was talking about the difference between uh, he uses the analogy of a bakery and he talks about the difference between being a good baker and running a bakery. And those are two different skill sets, right? And so I think oftentimes there's a lot of people who are like, hey, I enjoy speaking and I enjoy uh, being on stage in front of an audience and sharing a story or telling a joke or whatever it may be. I like that part of the art side of it. And we oftentimes fail to remember the other side of it, the business side of it, of just because you're a speaker and just because you're even a good speaker doesn't necessarily mean that anybody cares or anybody's going to hire you or book you. So one of the the other sides of of the equation is that you have to understand the business part of it. You have to understand how to sell yourself as a speaker. So although speakers may or may not realize that, why do you think it is that that selling yourself can be such a challenge for so many speakers? Because I think sometimes it's hard to clarify in your head really what your message is and then take that in a way that present it to someone that makes sense, that they can wrap their hands around and make it tangible for them. And so just coming up with, you know, really what it is, what is my message and then translate in a way that someone's willing to hire you, number one, and put you on their stage and put their credibility on the line. So just drilling that down, I think probably the hardest thing, and you've actually had to tell me this a few times, and this, I think this is probably something I learned for you from you and it's probably one of your biggest quotes, and that is don't overthink it. And so I think that's our problem. And yeah. all walks of building a speaking business is that we overthink it. Right. So we've got six different elements that we're going to be walking through here and just kind of the methodology of how to sell yourself as a speaker, different things that you need to be thinking through and considering and things that are ultimately going to make a difference in helping you to sell yourself as a speaker and ultimately to uh, to get booked and uh, share your message with the world. So let's walk through these six. I'm going to let you kick off with the uh, the first one. What do you got? Okay. So we call them the different elements. So this is element number one, and I think it starts with a mindset. And so I believe, and you, you tell me if you agree with this or not, but I think selling doesn't come natural to people. I mean, that's not a natural thing. I think a lot of times people feel like, well, who am I to actually ask someone to pay me to do something that I love to do, or am I good enough to do this? And so the first thing you have to get out of the way is you got to get in the right mindset. Number one is you got to believe in your message. You got to believe in it so much so that it makes sense that people want to hear it. That's number one. Do you believe in yourself? And if you don't believe in yourself, then if I'm trying to hire you, that's going to come out really quickly. That conviction. So conviction sells a lot of times. You know, if I want to come and sell you something and I'm convicted about it, sometimes that conviction itself is going to be very clear. But if you don't have that mindset that, yes, people want to hear this message and you're never going to get off from, you know, step one. The second thing is you have to get past being afraid to ask people to pay for your message. And we get this a lot. We see this a lot on the Facebook page. We're like, oh, somebody actually said they're willing to hire me. I don't know what to charge them. Right. You know what? I don't know either half the time. We have a calculator and we kind of give you an idea, but you're just going to have to get out there and say, hey, you know what? I think I want to charge you this and be convicted about it. And then if they push back, that's okay. That's part of it. By the way, one of the things I think it's key is the more people push back, and this is a good selling point, 
and the more questions they ask, that's actually a positive buying sign. Some people see that as a negative, but when I start asking you a lot of critical questions and really pushing back, how'd you come up with that number and this and that, that's actually a very positive signal. And so you should expect that in the selling process. So element number one, Grant, I think is to have the right mindset from day one. It seems like part of the challenge with selling yourself as a speaker is and where the mindset piece can become a, a hangup for a lot of speakers is it's difficult to separate ourselves from the service that we offer, right? Mm -hmm. Because we feel like when we're having to talk up the deliverable, we're having to talk up the service and hype it up or whatever it may be, that we are the product. So if they are choosing to reject, you know, we're not interested or it's not really what we're looking for. It's not that they're just like, hey, I have this object, this widget, this gizmo or gadget or this thing that I'm trying to sell. If they don't like it, ah, well, it doesn't have any emotions or feelings. But if they don't, if they're not interested in me as a speaker, like I am the product. And so you think that that, that plays into it, that oh, yeah. um, there's just that like natural human element of like fear of rejection. And so I am scared to put myself out there because what if they don't like not the product or the service, but they don't like me is what it feels yeah. like. Well, who likes to be rejected? I mean, no one. Right, right. Nobody. And if you do, then you're kind of weird, right? In fact, you and I were talking before we got on the call today, I was rejected twice this morning already. Right. And I mean, that was like two blows of the stomach and two things that I was hoping I got rejected on. And I've been doing this now for a couple of years now, and I'm used to rejection, but more used to it. But every time I hear it, it's still a little bit of blow to the ego. So I think part of it is, is that in order to put yourself out there, you have to be willing to be rejected. And the bottom line is rejection is part of the game. Right. And so if you don't have that mindset in place that, hey, my, my message is worth it and I'm worth it and I'm willing to pay for it and then be willing to say, hey, you're going to have to go through a couple no's to get some through some yeses. If you don't have that mindset, it's going to be tough for you. And you're always going to figure out ways. By the way, speakers are really classic at this. We figure out ways to do everything but get on the phone and actually talk to someone about hiring me. Right, let right. me tinker with my website. Let me tinker with my message. Let me tinker with this. And oh, by the way, I just spent three hours building my speaking business. No, you didn't until you got on the phone and talked to somebody. That's when you're building your speaking business because we try to avoid actually going out and selling ourselves. And hopefully some of these elements we'll talk about will help you with that and get you closer to booking your gig by getting you on the phone with people. All right, there you have it. 10 more lessons from the 40 Speaking Lessons from 400 Episodes series. Hope you enjoyed this rewind from some of our guests. Don't forget to head over to thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Enter your info to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. We're giving away 40 copies for this 40 Lessons series. So don't wait. Go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book.